We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Jacob Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Hi. You know, this is the first time I've seen you since the last time I saw you. Which was technically please, before please, Christmas. Please do not laugh at that. That's not funny, you guys. It's real. But it's true. It's real but, life. Yeah. It's yeah. like, hey, you're, hey, you've lost something. We, we hung out a bunch, the yep. then it was Christmas, we and did. now we're here. It's true. And it'll probably be next year when I see you again after this. So. It, it, hang on. Like, time out for a second. Why are you taking my dad jokes? That's, Were that, you going to use that one? No, but that's but I'm dad joke, dad joke Don. Like I'm the one with the dad jokes. Like you're taking the only thing I have that that I have. I think it's a sign of progress. You've taught me well. Okay. I don't even know what dad jokes were before I met you. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> So big thanks to everyone who takes the time out of their busy lives to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. We really do appreciate the comments and the feedback. And it's really good to always hear from you guys. It also helps us get recognized out there. And a quick shout out, Spotify now offers ratings, not reviews. But if you're using Spotify to listen, drop us a quick five star in there. But the reviews, they're written on iTunes. And we really do appreciate hearing from you guys. So Don, I'm kind of curious. What are folks saying about Midwest Murder these days? Well, it sounds silly, but it really does amazing things for us. So please, please do that. Um, thank you. Thank you. Five stars, Krista and Ryan Tetzloff. Jonah and Don work wonderfully together as hosts. Thank you for bringing your show to Fargo. The live experience is really cool. Thank you for sharing these stories and for doing your research with a heart emoji and a smile emoji. God, I like the emoji finish on that. I really appreciate it's that. It's a strong finish. I think we're a good team. I agree with that. And then also love it. Five stars. KAU620. Which I appreciate everybody's like um, individual take on names, but when I get stuck reading them, I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm. I don't know I'm what just gonna spell to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh wait, it makes sense now that I read the first line. Kansas, I'm guessing. K A makes sense. Okay. I live in Kansas, but a Nodak friend introduced me to Midwest Murder, and I'm totally hooked. Despite the subject matter, the hosts are so easy to listen to and present the cases with care and consideration for the victims. I was in Minot over the weekend and was thrilled to meet Jonah in person. Well done. Keep up the great work. I hope to attend one of your live podcasts soon. Well, that's rad. Yeah, yeah. I was think. I, I actually think I, I think I recall that. It's really cool. Thanks for taking the time well, to review I would hope us. you recall it. Yeah. No, I, I, of course I do. Uh, you can also support Midwest Murder by buying us a hot dish at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Midwest Murder. We'd also like to give a shout out and thank you to our sponsor in this episode, the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot. That's the DVCC in Minot. And we really want to emphasize, especially during this this time, if you or someone you know is impacted by violence in their life, you, we, we need people to understand these cycles of violence do not change themselves. And there are free and confidential services available to you. And you can visit the website at courageforchange.org or the, call the crisis line at 701-857-2200. And there, there's so often people get captured or stuck for various reasons. And I want to emphasize that the DVCC and Minot is with you every step of the way to find solutions to perhaps the, the obstacles that you need to overcome to break that cycle of violence. They're here for you, and we encourage you to seek change and to seek a better life, and you can get it through the DVCC here in Minot. Raise your hand if you want to talk about Jonah's balls. No, we don't. It's, let's talk about nice underwear, okay? <laughs> they have a lot of great things at Manscaped. This episode, support for Midwest Murder Today, is also brought to you in part by Manscaped. They are the best in below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. And let me tell you, Don Palumbo, I'm wearing my Manscaped underwear right now. I'm sure you are. These are like, hey, listen, this, these are the most expensive pair of underwear that have ever covered my ass, Don Palumbo. And let me tell you... They were worth every damn penny, and everybody should invest in better underwear. And just when I just when I think that there's the line 
right? And then you just you take a big leap over it. Well, right? But it's okay. At least I've seen you leap a lot of lines in your day. I do. I do. That's what I do. Yeah. What, yeah, what we nickname do would you come up with that or for that? I don't know. I don't know. Work I'll think on, on that. But again, you can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com. They have underwear. They have T-shirts. They have amazing uh, things that help your face, your balls specifically. They have ball creams, all that good stuff. The lawnmower, they have a, they have a, it's they have waterproof. Ball deodorant. Waterproof ball shaving. I didn't even know that was a thing before Manscaped. I realized, like, how would that be possible? I'm terrified of electrocution. Now with Manscaped, I don't have that problem. So you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use code MidwestMurder. What about the Weed Whacker? The Weed Whacker? We've talked about the Weed Whacker. It's it's pretty efficient. I actually, again, something else. I used it tonight. I got my ears and it's not quite as efficient. I'll say I like it a lot. And if you can't pluck your ear hairs out, it's a good good supplement, right? Why why would you tweeze your... You're not well because well, I don't, don't want them. I don't want them jamming out there. Don't say pluck. You're not a chicken. You say tweeze. Okay? <laughs> oh, I tweeze things. Don't yeah. pluck them. Yeah. We tweeze them. We pluck them. We manscape them. You can That's get twenty percent right. off and free shipping mm-hmm. with a, with a code MidwestMurder at manscape.com. It's really good. Our story primarily takes place at the end of the 1800s, as the world grew into the 20th century. In the 1890s, the forces unleashed by industrialization, urbanization, and immigration that had been reshaping the nation since the Civil War came to a head, setting the stage for a burst of reform in the early 20th century. The U.S. became more involved in global politics. The Great Depression occurred in 1893. There were labor disputes plaguing all the cities. Famine and drought racked the Midwest. Locusts, too. Anarchists. Anarchists wanted to destroy capitalism. President McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist in 1901. Jim Crow laws were implemented throughout the South. Lynchings were common. The final battle between American cavalry and indigenous peoples climaxed with the massacre at Wounded Knee. Women's suffrage was beginning. It was a tumultuous decade full of social and political reform. And if you were eight years old, you'd get a job. Yeah, right? Johann Hoke was born in Germany on November 10th, 1864. His birth name was Jacob Schmidt. Throughout most of this story, I am going to refer to him as Johann Hoke because he had dozens of aliases throughout his life. Impossible to keep up with all of them, but he's known as Johann Hoke. Now, as legend has it, his mother had a terrible nightmare and he was born again, November 10th, 1864. His mother had a terrible nightmare on the evening she birthed her son. It was said the devil stood next to her bedside, pointing at her baby. This child is cursed. The demonic presence laughed as it disappeared into the night. Now, Johann Hoke was told the story when he was old enough to understand, and it stuck with him for the rest of his life. His family was profoundly devout, and he was expected to join his older brothers behind the pulpit. Shortly before her death, his mother bestowed, bestowed upon him a Bible, which he carried for the rest of his life. He was just 14 at the time of her death. His father, Adam, was a priest and a stern disciplinarian. Johann had no true interest in religion. He was far more infatuated with romance and the art of seduction. He discovered a secluded spot where all the men in the area took their sweethearts to propose. From his perch, Johann watched and heard hundreds of proposals. He would lay and wait for hours to hear a single proposal. Quote, love is a game of war, not politics. By the time I was of age, I had learned what apparently nobody else on earth knows, how to propose so that no woman would refuse. He fought in the Franco-German War and was part of Bismarck's forces, crushing France and seizing Paris. Then he worked at a drugstore in Berlin for several years, where he developed both a skill and curiosity for potions and poisons. At age 24, he attended the University of Heidelberg in Germany for several years. Although Hoke didn't graduate, he took a keen interest in science and mastered several languages, including French, Yiddish, and Russian. Money became his prime motivator, and for Johann Hoke, 
the easiest way to obtain money was to fool a woman into giving you all of hers. His first matrimonial conquest was to be Anna Moulton, the daughter of an artist. He invited her for a moonlight ride on a beautiful lake just outside of Vienna, where he told Anna he was actually a royal descendant to the throne of Denmark, followed by a proposal for her hand in marriage. Anna wasn't into it. She didn't believe his bullshit story and asked to go back to shore. Johann Hoke was furious at the rejection and decided he was going to drown her. Quote, then this is the end of your life and maybe mine, Hoke said as he rushed her. Anna struggled and the boat overturned, dumping them both into the lake. There was a brief melee in the water and Anna slowly disappeared into the, into the lake. But just when he thought she was gone, Hoke felt Anna's small hand grab his and he pulled her above the surface. Anna said, you needn't drown me, Jacob, because I guess you really do love me. Is that true love, Don Palumbo? So he right. he dumps her out of a boat, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that just happened, right? Yeah. And then, but then he rescued her and she loved him. It sounds like love to me. <laughs> the two were married within a month. After a few years, Anna's health began failing and medicine only seemed to make her more sick. No matter how Wait. much medicine he gave her, she kept getting sick. Is it? Medicine. Yeah, Is sure. It? No, he's, sure. Okay. Johan brought her to New York. He figured the change would benefit her health. Not long after the move to New York, Johan came home to discover Anna was dead in her bed. He claimed it was an obvious suicide. She drank poison from his lab because she missed the homeland. Although he wasn't arrested, detectives opened an investigation. They didn't believe his version of the story because the poison she drank would have killed her where she stood. Hope fled in the middle of the night without a word to anyone in the area. He showed up shortly after that in New Albany, Indiana, where he married widow Maggie Moiter. When she died a year later, Johan was betrothed to Maggie's sister, Matilda. Hope lived with Matilda for eight months before fleeing for Paris with approximately $6,000, the entire life savings of the two sisters. That's $200,000 modern money. That was the moment he realized how truly easy and profitable the bigamy business was. He believed police were powerless to connect him to the murders. So I want to know, did anybody say anything like what, what he or how he actually proposed? Yeah, there's there's stuff out there. He he was very complimentary, very he acted anxious and and there was a there was a number of tells that he had that really you know, made him this 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 charming man according to legend. And it, it's shit like this that made like made women out to be so dumb. It, right? Like you're just some dumb woman. This is why you can't vote. Is, I, I is, agree. To, to be fair, at this time, it was really hard to be a woman. The laws weren't in your favor. Uh, when, like, if you were like a single woman without a husband, you couldn't get loans. There was a lot of things you could not do. So, so many women did feel pressured into finding someone who would take their hand. And, and especially if you were a widow with kids, there was all these sort of extenuating circumstances that really made it difficult, which made them easy targets for guys like Hoke. Like they, 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 it was said that at the end of this, this 1800s and even into the early 1900s, as many as 50,000 women were scammed through like matrimonial scams similar to what he did. Well, they seem nice. Great. <laughs> so in Paris, he, he stole the money from Matilda and her sister. The one sister died. And in, in Paris, he regaled women with poetry while strumming on a zither. A zither is a German string instrument. It's like a guitar with no neck and way more strings. Johann Hoke also started practicing his favorite new hobby, hypnosis. Women loved it. Johann Hoke was a big hit at parties. Johann Hoke was a predator. That's what he was. He wasn't a hit. Oh, big hit. I mean, women chewed up that the hypnosis. They loved it. Johann's next target. Wait, wait. Well, they did. He wasn't hypnotizing men. 
Do you realize how dumb you just sound? I'm sorry, I, but this is for the era. I'm not saying like that. Like he wasn't a big hit. He was he hypnotizing was a, women into doing it. I agree, but his, he was a big hit at parties. Everybody wanted him there to hypnotize the party. He was invited to all the major social events. He was literally a big hit at parties. I'm sorry I called you dumb. Well, I'm but. just saying what his life was. He was he was like socially in demand wherever he went because he'd strum on the zither, he'd he'd regale people with lies. Everything he said right. was a but lie. Women were hypnotized to love it. Yeah. Like I, I don't know if that works. Okay, that way. I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna quit interjecting about the 1800s women because well, I feel like this is. Yeah. No, like, it's. I'm gonna hop on my soapbox and not get off. Okay. Johann's next target was Julia Le Cirque, a pretty French widow. When she refused his initial proposals, Johann Hoax snuck inside her apartment with a phony bomb and threatened to blow her up if she didn't take his hand in marriage. This guy is hot, right? Don, he likes her so much, he wants to bomb her. I mean, if someone... If that's not love. If someone, well, first of all, A, broke into my apartment or home, of course, I'm in, right? <laughs> but, but then, I mean, because... Throw you're, the bomb you're, in the mix. You're absolutely, I mean, proving your love to me, right? But then, then you claim that you have a bomb and you're going to blow me up if I, don't, uh, if I don't take your hand in marriage. I mean, okay. Well, this may shock you, but in spite of the bomb... She said no. Oh, thank God. Okay. When that didn't work, Hoke squeezed Julia's hand so hard, her rings cut into her fingers. She still refused. Then he stomped on her bare toes. When Julia started screaming, Hoke choked her, quote, just a little. She finally gave in and agreed to marry him. Six months later, Julia died from violent stomach cramps. The town constable claimed he found arsenic in the glass she drank from, but Hoke told the constable, quote, that's not the same glass. And the investigation stopped right there. I, I have a feeling that I'm going to have to bite my tongue a lot. Don't, don't bite it. It's not the what? same glass, Don. And this I'm guy sorry, sounds... I don't think people want to be here till 11. <laughs> I mean, like, well, of course it's not the same glass. And, you know, I mean... I'm going to choke you just a little. Can we go back to that for a second? So just choked you just a little. I mean. Okay. okay. I guess. I guess. Look, okay. it wasn't the same glass. And this guy sounds really smart and polite when he talks to everybody. Plus, he's a hypnotist. So everything he says is true. He's like the internet. <laughs> Hoke collected 40,000 francs from her estate. His third wife was Wilhelmina... Schaimendantel of Dresden. Hoke was pleased he didn't even have to weave an intricate fairy tale to win her hand in marriage. She was easy and desperate, and she had a nice bank account left by her late husband. Wilhelmina tragically slipped and fell over a precipice while the two were hiking on their honeymoon. Hoke told police, quote, I was with her, and I was able to reach her side and kiss her goodbye before she closed her eyes. As he choked her a little to make sure she was dead. <laughs> Hoke. <laughs> Hoke often bragged about his knowledge of chemistry, once telling a friend, quote, I can do things with drugs that would make your hair stand on end. He was also bombastic in his vocal disparagement of women. Quote, they are so dependent and confiding, they should be classified as domestic animals. In spite We're, of nope, that. Nope, oh, nope. Oh, Okay, nope. nope. We got, we got nope. a little we're not, something we're there. We're not moving on there. They are so dependent because women were property at that point. So, uh-huh. Yep, we are. That's And then confiding they should be classified as domestic animals. He's the worst. Yep. Okay. In spite of that, in spite of that open disdain, Hoke was a ferocious, calculated sex addict and couldn't resist pursuing women. When uh, he met uh, Nope. Not pursuing. He was a predator, but it's fine. Well, it's fine. A I'm done. predatory I'm done. pursuit. I'm done. I'm done. When he met them, Hoke assured women he was a gentleman and a man of business who didn't play cards, didn't smoke cigars, visit racetracks. He didn't drink whiskey or keep company with ill-fated members of society. He'd often tell women, quote, I can't tell one playing card from another. Uh, 
yes. Sounds dreamy. Well, that's the sign of a good man. Yeah. All the signs are there. Hoke settled back in Germany for, for a few years. He got married in 1887 and had three sons. He squandered all his money on failed business ventures and was soon facing pressure from banks and authorities. Hoke thought the domestic routine of married life was for dullards. So he ditched his German family, married a woman in Russia, scammed her out of 15,000 rubles and fled to England. Once there, he used brute force to compel an English woman to marry him. The two set sail for the United States sometime around 1890. During the voyage, Hoke became smitten with a woman of Turkish descent named Ida. The last day before land was sighted, Hoke's wife mysteriously disappeared. No one knew what happened to her. I thought his, um, I thought his proposals were... Is that what he meant by that no one could refuse them because he was forcing them into it? I mean, and I'm I'm not I'm not trying to make jokes. I'm, I no. mean, is it, no it's, he he was a bit more brutal right now with some of his proposals. I think while he was developing and refining his predatory skill set, truly. So once they landed, his wife had mysteriously disappeared, and hoax hoax mutual content and lust for women was massive and uncontrollable. In 1892, he fled to Chicago. Now, his victims were almost exclusively immigrants and widows, many of whom spoke very broken English. He knew exactly how to exploit their weaknesses, preying on their fear of loneliness and separation. He was later quoted, if you want to kill your wife and get the money and at the same time avoid suspicion, be a devout husband. I appreciate you saying that um, he knew how to exploit their weaknesses because that's what he did. Yeah, I mean, you big can time. see it. Big time. Hoke was relatively off the radar between 1892 and 1894. It's possible at this time he was operating under the alias Jake Hatch. Hatch allegedly worked with infamous serial killer H.H. Holmes. Holmes had a murder-torture castle in the Chicago area, and his tactics of luring women to their death were nearly identical to that of Johann Hoke. On his deathbed, Holmes claimed he had a partner. Some people, witnesses, corroborate that story. Others contradict it. Many of those who corroborate the story, the rarely seen partner, later identified Johann Hoke as Jake Hatch. In 1894, shortly before mass murderer H.H. Holmes was arrested, Hoke opened a tavern in Chicago, one he acquired through marriage. Hoke's regular scam was to rent a nice house, furnish it on a payment plan, and take women there, claiming it was all his. He'd claim he was some great superintendent. He'd always tell them he had this executive-level job with major organizations like the Pullman Company or any of its major competitors. Then, when they agreed to marry him, he moved into their home. He sold the rented furniture without paying back on his rent-to-own agreement. He actually managed to scam Fred Magerstadt, a furniture store owner, numerous times. Fred thought it seemed odd how often Hope got married, but he never really questioned it. In June of that same year, Hoke was introduced to Julia Steinbreaker by his good friend Benno Lechner. Benno even served as best man at their wedding. Two weeks later, Julia died from a violent illness. On her deathbed, Julia claimed she was being poisoned, but no one believed her. When authorities demanded a coroner's inquest, Hoke produced a signed death certificate, and that was the end of it. The certificate was fake. The coroner system at this time was so flawed and corrupt, it wasn't difficult for Hoke to get falsified documents. He collected more than $4,000 from her estate and released a new matrimonial ad the day after her funeral. One week later, Hoke abandoned the dead woman's children at their home, but not before proposing to the maid, oh, come Annie on. Ebert. Like, really? Yeah, no, it's... When Annie denied his request... Hoke responded by evicting the maid and his young stepchildren. At least he didn't murder her, I guess. That's one way to look at it. Mrs. Emma Rankin saw his matrimonial ad and sent him a letter straight away. Emma was just as adept at playing the marriage game as Johann Hoke. She had been married nearly 20 times. Rankin was wanted for bigamy and larceny. When she responded to Hoke's ad, her intentions were the same as his. The two were married within days of meeting one another. 
When Hoke insisted she hand over her life savings of $3,000, she refused and he threatened her, but she didn't give up her money. After just three days of living together, Hoke put a gun to her ribs and demanded the money. She told him, I have to get the key at my sister's house and then get the money from the bank. Then she ran out the back door. Hoke pulled the, tr- pulled the trigger on the gun, but nothing happened. He pulled it again and again. The clicking of the revolver was the last thing Rankin heard as she ran away. Why was she wanted for bigamy and larceny? Because she was scamming dudes. Why wasn't he? Well, he was scanning women. But the thing is, the reason he, he was going to kill her. She knew it, and she had actually emptied the bullets in his gun, knowing he was probably going to try some shit. That's the only reason she survived and got away. Right, so he met his match. Kind of. I mean... Yeah. Because of her own checkered past, Emma Rankin didn't report the incident to police. Hoke's next wife was Martha Harafelt. His approach with her was all business, and she responded to the sensibility of his proposed arrangement. Hope gained possession of her entire estate. Two months later, an urgent message arrived at their home. Hoke's mother in Germany died. He had to return immediately to claim a vast inheritance. Martha waited three months before accepting the truth. She had been swindled, left with no money, and was now destitute. And this was the typical scam with Hoke. He he wowed women with compliments, intelligence, and an air of importance, leading them to believe he was an executive-level businessman with money and a rich estate. Those he didn't kill were often left broke and homeless, and most of the women he robbed were too ashamed to pursue legal action, and frankly, there wasn't a lot of sympathy for them in the court system anyway. Right, because it was their fault, I'm sure. Right, no, yeah, and plus they lacked the money to pursue a civil lawsuit. By now, Hoke had killed at least half a dozen women and swindled twice that number. He was living prosperously on money acquired through casual murder and willful deception. The combination of organized crime, bloodshed, massive labor disputes, and homelessness swelling the streets of Chicago made it a perfect hunting ground for Johan Hoke. Even if he did get reported for defrauding a spinster, cops were too busy to care. The labor disputes in Chicago got so violent, the president had to send in the army. Hoke left Chicago in 1895, taking his wealth and his lies to West Virginia. The squat little bigamist purchased a saloon that became well known for its appeal to German immigrants. Hoke pranced around and serenaded with the zither. His ravenous pursuit of widows was noticed by locals, and it made some of them uneasy. But the minister, Hermann Haas, just figured Hoke was lonely, so he introduced him to Carolyn Miller. Carolyn was a kind, portly widow with $8,000 in the bank and a $2,500 insurance policy. Reverend Haas married them on April 18, 1895, and Hoke moved into Carolyn's home. Two months later, the reverend was called to Carolyn's bedside. He was shocked by her thin, ghastly appearance. It was reported Jacob Huff, which is the name Hoke used while there, was observed giving her a white powder, and she protested the bitter-tasting medicine. Haas was suspicious, but he didn't want to falsely accuse such a well-liked, reputable man as Jacob Huff. When, when you describe him as a squat little bigamist, I picture, <laughs> like, it makes me giggle, um, but I, I picture, like, um, Rumpelstiltskin, you know, with his, little, with his little zither. Like, it, it makes me giggle. Totally fair. Mm-hmm. When Carolyn's health continued declining, Reverend Haas consulted famed local surgeon, Dr. Gregory Ackerman. His expertise was in stomach disease. Ackerman noted Carolyn's swollen hands, continuous vomiting, and distended stomach. That's an abnormally swollen outward abdomen as signs of poisoning. Carolyn died the next morning, and hoax attending physician, Dr. Ford, declared the cause of death as acute parentontis. Acute parent, paranitis, excuse me. Medical ethics prevented Dr. Ackerman from challenging a colleague's diagnosis. When Reverend Haas heard the news, he went to Carolyn's house. He was shocked to discover the home was empty. Carolyn's body was left unattended. He just left her there? Well, Hoke was at the barber shop getting his mustache trimmed and joking with the barber when Haas located him. Hoke was jovial. Haas reprimanded him for not mourning quietly at home, and Hoke broke down into tears. The sudden flip of emotions amplified Haas's belief that Hoke was a murderer. 
Haas initiated a really impressive personal investigation. He quickly learned Hoke had closed his saloon and owed money all over town, but he couldn't connect Hoke to the purchase of poison, nor did he find any evidence of poison inside the home. Hoke sensed the reference was on to him and took action. He finished closing his businesses, drained Carolyn's bank accounts, and purchased a ticket to Chicago. Hoke paid a final visit to the home of Reverend Haas late into the night. And when I say paid the reverend a visit, I mean he broke into his home and tried replacing the reverend's medicine with poison, but Haas caught him in the act. What in God's name are you doing in here? Hoke blurted out a lame excuse and he bolted out the door. Haas was freaked out. He dumped all the medicines and threw the bottles away. After regaining his composure a few hours later, Haas went to police, who immediately went in search of Johan Hoke. The next morning, police discovered Hoke's hat, coat, vest, shirt, trousers, shoes, a silver pocket watch, and a copy of Carolyn's will on the shores of the Ohio River. Police dragged the river in search of his body, but never found it. Jacob Huff was legally declared dead in spite of Haas's protests. Police said the sad husband gave in to grief and took his own life by walking into the river. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, sad dramatic story. dramatic effect. Oh, my wife's will. Mm. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, right? I just, I abandoned all my earthly belongings and my wife's will and just walked into the river to die. Haas didn't believe it. It's good for him. Good on Haas. He didn't believe it, and he pressed investigators, insisting Jacob Huff was alive. More than 100 pictures were circulated, but they never saw a trace of the man because Hoke was well on his way back west with 2500 bucks in his pocket. Now, Haas never gave up. He made it his life's work to track down the man he knew as Jacob Huff. Haas meticulously scanned matrimonial notices looking for signs of Hoke. Over the years, he clipped hundreds of newspapers with potential leads, traced Hoke back to Germany, and discovered his real name, Jacob Schmidt, in 1898. Over the years, Haas amassed a catalog of information he believed was related to the lying, stealing, cheating, killing bigamist, and he believed it was only a matter of time before it would be useful to police. Hoke took great care in covering his trail of murder and bigamy. He avoided paper trails and insurance fraud, limiting himself to liquid assets, pillaging only their bank accounts and physical property, disappearing as quickly as he arrived. Hoke used a different name everywhere he went. He was rarely with a woman longer than a few months before they either died, disappeared, or he bailed on them after stealing all their money. Hoke traveled all the way to Colorado, where he got ripped off in a gold mine scam. Allegedly, he melted the fake gold into bullets and shot up the men who robbed him with a forty-four revolver before jumping on a train to San Francisco. On the West Coast, he he romanced a widow, and the two were married on September 22, 1896. Hoke bailed within a few weeks, leaving the woman penniless and homeless to die from grief within just a few years. Hoke was married three weeks after that in Cincinnati to Clara Bartels, a recent widow whose husband passed away just one month earlier. Clara died two months after the marriage to Hoke. The official cause of death was reported as gastritis. After the funeral, Hoke made himself right at home in the house of the now-deceased Bartels. Things got even better for him when Julia Dois, a widow from Hamilton, Ohio, moved in with Hoke and married him. This was sometime in early 1897. Their union lasted a few weeks before Hoke stole 600 bucks and her entire wardrobe, telling Julia he was departing for Germany. The entire Cincinnati escapade lasted about five months. Why do you think he took her wardrobe? No, he took her money, but he took all her clothes. Well, he's probably going to get married again. Maybe those will be gifts? Gifts, or he'll sell them. Is he a cross-dresser? Oh, okay. A, we don't say that anymore. And B... I'm sorry. That's what it was at the, at the time. And B, um, no, he's going to give it as a gift or sell it. Okay. In 1898, Hoke quietly returned to the south side of Chicago, moving in across the street from Janet Spencer and her 10-year-old son. This was in an area gradually being overtaken by the levee. The neighborhood was swarming with pimps, dope fiends, scoundrels, opium dens, and prostitutes. Janet was struggling to maintain control of her business, a restaurant and boarding house, 
as the levy grew. We made reference to the levy gangs and crime syndicate in the Bell Gunnis episode. In short, it's a segregated area of Chicago dedicated to debauchery, and it was owned and operated by two nefarious bosses who provided protection, dispensed beatings, committed arsons, murders, and much more. Janet was beautiful, but she was unhappy and feeling hopeless. This made her more susceptible to the man who introduced himself as N.H. Chalfont, superintendent of the Hotel National Advertising Agency. Chalfont's romancing of Janet was decadent, lively, and bright with champagne toasts, galas, moonlight dancing, flowers, and social status events at the finest hotels in downtown Chicago. When he suggested marriage, Janet Spencer counted her blessings. This was the life and love she had always dreamed of. Spoiler alert, Chalfont is Johann Hoke. Duh. Like, I mean... Hope. Hope decided the two should be married in Kentucky. At his behest, Janet sold her property for $2,000 and paid for the destination wedding. When Janet, her son, and Hoke returned to Chicago on April 18, 1898, she had $1,700 left to her name, and she paid for them to get new apartments. When Hoke told Janet he had urgent business at the Palmer House, she entrusted him with the rest of her fortune. He requested Janet and her son to join him on the business trip but to wait in the lobby at the luxurious State Street hostelry, which is precisely where he abandoned them. Janet returned to the apartments a few hours later. Her new husband was gone, and he had taken everything. She notified police, and a few plainclothes detectives were dispatched to find Chalfont, but the effort was fruitless. In March of 1898, Hoke was arrested for selling unpaid mortgaged furniture after the Simon & Strauss Furniture Company filed an official complaint against him. He was jailed for retail fraud and sentenced to one year. Hoke told police his name was Martin Dotz and listed his residence as 1266 15th Street on the west side. Little did police know the owner of that residence had recently disappeared and nobody was looking for her. The furniture company had no idea what Hoke's grand schemes were. They just wanted their money. Chicago detectives didn't really know what to make of Martin Dotz. Certainly he seemed suspicious, but they were utterly oblivious to his continental killing spree and rapacious bigamy. He served his his year in jail without incident and was generally well-liked by guards and inmates. Hoke was scheduled for release on July 31st, 1899. Before being set free, he was questioned at length by Chief of Detectives Captain Luke Colloran. Captain Colloran was not well thought of. He was a lapdog for the mayor and for criminals. Colloran totally mismanaged the police, detectives, and just about every major role of responsibility required of his position. Colloran received a letter from Reverend Haas relaying all the evidence the priests amassed against Hoke from his abandonment abandonment of a wife and children in Germany and his suspicions that Hoke killed Carolyn in West Virginia. Colloran thought the priest was an irritating, nosy man with too much time on his hands. But he did reply to Haas's letter to request more information. The Bureau was aware of Hoke's many aliases and his lies to get money from lonely widows, But they couldn't connect the dots of his heinous crimes. None of it really added up to much of anything for them. Now, Reverend Haas went immediately to the state's attorney to request Carolyn's body be exhumed. The order was issued on November 14, 1898, three years after Carolyn was murdered. But Hoke's depravity hadn't stopped at her death. When the pine box was opened, a horrific discovery Carolyn's stomach had been cut open and her vital organs removed. It was gruesome, but police didn't make the connection that a crime had occurred. It was determined she was not poisoned, and no charges were filed against Johann Hoke. Um, he dug her body up. Huh? Oh. <laughs> well, and at that point, they, they couldn't make a connection that a crime had occurred? I mean, at that time, I don't think that um, embalming and those types of practices were done Back then, like so they were like, "Hey, looks legit." They just ran off, I guess. Like, oh, that's icky. 
On the very day Hoke was set for release, Fred Mogerstadt, remember him? He's the other furniture dealer Hoke ripped off years back. He showed up with his lawyer and Hoke's unpaid bill. Hoke was again indicted for stealing furniture and selling it and sentenced to another year in jail. He cheerfully accepted the verdict, served the time, and walked away scot-free in October of 1900. While Hoke was in jail, many people dismissed him as a poser, not worthy of deeper investigation. Although Colloran didn't do much with the infor- in- do much with the information he'd been given, police inspector George Shippey would not let it go. He dug into Hoke's background, turning up missing and deserted women all over the country. But there was no evidence to charge him with anything, no proof the missing women were murdered. Inspector Shippey was legally helpless to prevent Hoke's release, but that didn't stop him from pursuing leads and doing everything he could to piece the case together. After two years behind bars, Hoke was free to kill again, and kill he did. For the next five years, Johann Hoke gallivanted across the United States, embarking on an unparalleled spree of marriage and murder. Before his time in jail, Hoke generally spent several months poisoning his wives and relieving them of their money. But now, he moved and killed more quickly than ever before, marrying, killing, or deserting within weeks. He boarded a train, robbing several widows in St. Louis, and then showing up in San Francisco to marry and murder twice more. Susan Maynard in San Francisco, at age 27, was his youngest victim, although he would later claim Susan was actually killed by one of his jealous ex-wives. Because I'm, because I'm sure he had many of them. If they weren't dead, they were broke. Yeah. And... and absolutely jealous maybe so do you think that maybe that's actually possible absolutely wow jump into my into my house and you know threaten to you know blow me up if i uh, if i don't marry you yeah i'm gonna be big time jealous Mm -hmm. yeah hoke was an expert poisoner during his spree between 1900 to 1905 he primarily used arsenic because arsenic was found in embalming fluids therefore he could easily hide trace amounts that would not be detected should the bodies of his victims be examined after departing san francisco johan hoax stopped in wisconsin long enough to kill two more women before proceeding to baltimore after his stint in the charm city Hoke traveled to New York, where he boarded ship and vacationed leisurely in a time, for a time in Europe. After that, he enjoyed a short reunion with his German wife and children. But spending time with them got old quickly. Hoke told the kids he was leaving for a pack of cigarettes and never returned. I'm kidding, but he did leave without saying a word and... <laughs> he did leave without saying a word and returned to his favorite American killing ground of Chicago. Wow. And... Hang on a second. So what, what do you think, I mean, was he, was he money hungry? Was he a psychopath? Uh, I mean, was he evil? Like what? Money and power. I mean, this is like, feels like a couple women a month. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, at this point, you know, marry someone for three weeks and then beats feet. I mean, I he wanted to constantly live in excess. Everything he bought and wore was of the highest end. All the furniture he ordered for his, his fake scam houses. He wanted the absolute lap of luxury and he wanted sex constantly. And he found a way through hypnotist, hip, hypnotism and charm and lying to exploit, mo- again, mostly widows and immigrants, people who spoke broken English. Like it. Yeah. And he, yeah, he was, he was lustful. So he returned to his favorite American killing ground of Chicago. Johann Hoke worked with many different accomplices over the years, other con men and con women, people who were deeply invested in defrauding people through matrimonial scams and supplying Johann Hoke with marks. While Hoke was marrying and murdering all over the country, Inspector Shippey was pursuing every lead possible. Eventually, Shippey uncovered a Hoke accomplice, Gustav Strilo. Strilo turned confidential informant and supplied Shippey with several Hoke aliases as well as a list of victims' names. In October of 1904, Hoke courted Caroline, Carolyn Stryker for a week before marrying her in Philadelphia. 
Hoax snuck off with her $1,800 nest egg 11 days after their marriage. She fell ill and died shortly after reporting the theft to Philadelphia police. Absolutely a coincidence, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. hard to connect the two, clearly. Well, apparently it was. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I think it's... It's not for lack of trying, at least in Shippy's case, but the thing with Johan Hoke is he, at this point, is traveling about every three weeks... He's using a different name everywhere he goes. He's got and he's got disguises and different jobs. It's so hard. There's no paper trail. There's just nothing. It'd be it would be so hard to capture him. Lying was just so freaking easy back then. Like, cause who can challenge anything? Well, you just you weren't going to get caught. There's you, there's yeah. no ID system. There's there's no recording of of anything anywhere. That was the that was the thing at this time. Is like. Even in modern times, we struggle with like interagency communication and we keep records now. Not only was there no interagency communication back then, but half the time they weren't even keeping records, you know? Fingerprints didn't even exist yet. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so wild. So, well, and, well, at this time, if you're looking in North Dakota years, we were 80 years away from, from, from that, 80, right? 85-ish. But by the time she reported that to police and, and, and she died, Hoke was already gone. He had fled back to Chicago. He furnished a fresh new scam house and penned a Lonely Hearts advertisement, initiating his search for a new wife. Marie Walker responded to his ad, but she was aware of matrimonial scams and would not commit without references. Hoke wooed her with a fantastic tale of hardship and survival. He told her his first wife and their four children all died. I cared for my invalid wife for 18 years before before God called upon her. That's what he said to her. He said, I'm a rich man with an $8,000 nest egg, and I'll be receiving an additional $15,000 insurance payout. Hoke was a talented, clever, and well-spoken liar and a hypnotist who knew exactly what to say at all times. When he showed Marie his well-furnished home, quote, The only thing missing is companionship, the love of a tender wife to share my fortune with. For three weeks. That's quite the line. Is it? Is it? uh, At the time, clearly. Clearly. She decided at that moment. Hang on. I I wouldn't try that in 2021, almost 2022. (laughs) I feel like it wouldn't work. The love of a tender wife to share my fortune with. Oh, that's probably working out there somewhere. Okay. I don't think that's that's a zero out of a hundred line. I think that's maybe a two out of a hundred. Okay. I mean, after like, well, first of all, if you're responding on Tinder or, you know, or, or, or Craigslist or something, because, you know, Marie, sweet Marie responded to, to an ad, a matrimonial ad. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, if, if somebody said to me, the only thing missing is companionship, I would, I would giggle. That, that was the line that did it for Marie. She decided at that moment Everything Johan Hoke said must be true. Well, best of luck to her. Well, they were married on December 5th, 1904. Now, Marie had sisters, and Hoke wanted their money too. He started poisoning Marie immediately. She was on her deathbed in a matter of days after their wedding. As she lay dying in bed, Hoke professed his love to Marie's sister Amelia in the next room over within earshot of Marie. He kissed Amelia and asked her to marry him once Marie was dead. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Like, somebody catch this guy. Stop marrying him. Just be done. Just kill me and marry him then, you sow. Agreed. Yeah, that's what she screamed from the other room. So she... And I, yeah, I really, she screamed that. I really, love the, I really love the classy way of calling someone a pig. You know, <laughs> right? Like, you sow. Yeah. Hoke and Amelia ignored Marie's insult. She died a day later. Hoke was in such a rush to bury her, she wasn't embalmed. He married Amelia six days after the funeral, conned her into giving him all her money, 750 bucks, and disappeared immediately. Okay. It worked out pretty good I, for old Johan, huh? And I, I am sorry for what I'm about to say to poor Amelia, uh, because I'm sure he's, he's very classy and... Charming. Um, yeah, he's got it figured out. Your sister just died. Your sister, yeah. like your new husband's wife. No, your wait. Your new husband's former wife. Yep. Your sister yep. just died six days earlier. Yeah. And I mean, 
I know we're talking about a time frame of, of when, when, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, our, um, life expectancy was, you know, we died at like 40, it, but come on. It's, it's a pretty intense like, turnaround. Amelia. Like, I mean, pump um, the brakes a little. Amelia and Marie didn't have the best relationship, uh, clearly. Yeah, well. So yeah. Amelia, unlike so many others, was not going to abide by this transgression. One second. And I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. Did he look like Rumpelstiltskin? We're going to get to what he looks like eventually. Okay. I'm I, saving I, that. There's, I, that'll be the big reveal. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to save that. You guys can think in your mind what this squat little bigamist looked like. He looked like Rumpelstiltskin. 100%. I guarantee it. Amelia. I want to bet a beer. Can I bet a beer on it? Wait, you already know yeah. this. You already well, I already know. know. Never mind. You can bet somebody in the audience. <laughs> Amelia, unlike so many others, was not going to abide by this transgression. As Inspector Shippy heard her story, he knew this was his chance. Inspector Shippy ordered Marie's body to be exhumed. The poison was found in her organs. There was no embalming fluid to cover his tracks this time. Shippy sent photos to every major newspaper in the country of Johann Hoke. Within a few days, the murderous story of the bigamist Johann Hoke was national news. Every major newspaper in the country ran the story with his picture. Days later, Catherine Kimmerl, a widow and landlady in New York, recognized Hoke's picture in the newspaper. It was actually the same man who proposed to her within minutes of checking into his room the day prior. (laughs) Okay. What a a piece of work. Dude, at least, I mean, if you're going to go for this, you know, what is it? What's that? What's that quote? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I feel like that fits here. Just like, like you're so power hungry. Right. That you're going to, you're going to propose to some chick a couple of minutes after you meet her. Dude, definitely don't do that on Tinder. (laughs) He was power hungry. And the more he got away with it, the more powerful he felt because he truly just, he mocked police. He thought the police were a joke. Like narcissism at its finest here easily. So Catherine went to police immediately. When Hoke was arrested later that night, he claimed he was being framed. In his room, he had 625 bucks, numerous wedding rings with the inscriptions filed off, a loaded revolver, numerous suits, all with... So back then, when you got a custom tailor suit, there'd be like a little badge on the inside that was from like the, the city where you got that. So he had like half a dozen suits where he had cut out all of those markers so that nobody could tell where he actually got those. Well, and I mean, that many wedding rings. You right. Know, you gotta Once you meet somebody after a couple minutes, you kind of get their style, right? <laughs> and then you can decide what, what would fit that. minutes. Yeah. Also found a fountain pen that contained 58 grams of arsenic. He told detectives he planned on committing suicide. That's why he had the arsenic. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely, he was going to. News of his arrest quickly spread across the nation, and the stories of his exploits ran wild. He was held in New York and questioned for several days before his extradition to Chicago. Dozens of women offered their stories to the press. Hoke is a hypnotist and a poisoner. When he was transferred, more than 500 people, mostly women, packed the streets to get a look at the most infamous bigamist killer in history. One woman who claimed to have been robbed by Hoke tried attacking him, uh, tried attacking him with a horsewhip and had to be forcibly restrained. Hoke's notoriety and infamy grew with each passing day. Onlookers packed every stop along the way from New York to Chicago, hoping to catch a glimpse of Johann Hoke. When the train arrived at Union Station on February 9th, more than 2,000 spectators were gathered. People were audibly disappointed and shocked by his appearance. I'm, I'm getting so excited. It was hard to believe this was the man so many women fell for. Hoke was a squat German man standing at five foot five. He was balding, had a slight double chin, a chestnut brown handlebar mustache, and soft, powerful, penetrating blue eyes. Okay, hang on a second. Some Want me to run it by you one more time? No, because I'm kind of offended, actually, because some of us do have soft blue eyes and slight double chins. Okay? <laughs> that does not mean a thing. I'm not okay. saying I was disappointed with how he looked, girl. 
But they... I liked him better as Rumpelstiltskin. Isn't that kind of what Rumpel looks like? No? Are we going with like the book Rumpel or the sh- TV show Rumpel? Like from that one... What was that? You know what I'm talking about. That, yeah, I don't know. Never mind. But I, they, the joke was gone. They were expecting some like tall, dark, handsome, dashing man, and he was anything but. Although people did note he seemed to have a jovial atmosphere about him. And um, he was also a charming predator. People said he was clearly a man of humor. Inspector Sometimes Shippy... that gets you far in life. Yeah, it can. Inspector Shippy went to working on interrogating Hoke immediately. He brought in witnesses who claimed Hoke was in fact the man they saw lurking around the murder castle of H.H. Holmes. Numerous witnesses came in and, and, and spotted him in a lineup and said, yes, that is the guy we saw at the murder castle. Hoke denied it, claiming he didn't land on American shores until 1895. And he was able to convince Shippy of that lie. The evidence tying Hoke to Holmes is circumstantial, but... Hoke was charged for the murder of Marie Walker. In jail, Hoke was treated like a celebrity. His meals were catered by the finest Chicago restaurants and delivered to his cell by Chicago police. He lounged comfortably on a sofa he bought and had delivered to his cell. He roamed freely throughout the station and visited the barber shop weekly. Johann Hoke even received several marriage proposals while awaiting trial. I have decided that I want to change my master's thesis to like the, the study of what happens to women's brains and why they want to marry you know, convicted murderers and such. I find it absolutely fascinating. Several marriage proposals. Yeah. We've got Rumpelstiltskin like yeah. awaiting his trial. And, and he is... He's, I, They're I bringing know. him steak dinners. Yeah. He's kicking his feet up. He's drinking Budweiser's in there. Actually, drinking Budweiser's. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for real. It existed at that time, and then they literally, he got to eat and drink and smoke (laughs) cigars and hang out. I thought you were being funny, and I was like, oh, shit, I didn't laugh. And (laughs) then it's, okay, that makes sense. It's funny, but not. But not, yeah. So jury selection was dramatic, taking nearly 11 days. But finally, on May 1st, 1905, the trial of the Bluebeard killer, Johann Hoke, began. It was dramatic, and Hoke had no doubt his defense was strong, and he believed he'd be acquitted. The prosecution called 70 witnesses, many of his ex-wives, drugstore owners, and others who were swindled by Hoke over the years. The verdict was delivered on May 19th after just 30 minutes of deliberation. The jury found Johann Hoke guilty of murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Hoke sprung out of his chair and then collapsed back into it in shock. Not until he was being led away did he speak. Quote, It's all over with, Johan, shaking his head. I told you so. Then he smiled and placed his hands around his own throat, mimicking strangulation. Uh, he was talking to himself, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. He was interviewed in his cell 30 minutes later. He said, quote, I am more willing to die an innocent man than live with a cloud of guilt over me. He spent his final weeks writing an autobiography and trying to raise enough money for an appeal. He needed 1100 bucks, And on the eve before his hanging, he had only raised $500. In his final conversation with his lawyer, Hoke told his lawyer, quote, you get out of here and get that money before that time and I'll not die. Rob someone. Kill a millionaire. He laughed aloud at his own crude, dark humor. A small mob of hysterical women showed up at the jail begging for his life to be spared. Even the grizzled hangman who had led over a dozen men to the gallows refused to execute Johann Hoke and would not drop him on the gallows. Where's my man Shippy? I feel like he would have. <laughs> on the morning Hoke was to be hanged, some rich asshole paid the money for his appeal. Come on. Hoke dismissed his attorney and hired a rising star in the Illinois legislature, Frank D. Comerford. Comerford immediately filed the appeal on Johann's behalf, 
along with an affidavit from Amelia Walker. In the affidavit, Amelia, who previously testified for the prosecution, claimed her testimony was a lie and she was bullied into police, bullied into testifying by police. The governor ordered a stay and hoax execution. Who's Amelia again? Marie's daughter. Amelia no. was the oh, no, sister, oh, the sister wait. of Marie, who I'm he's sorry. getting convicted of for murder. Right. His, his, the sow. Amelia, yes. yes, Amelia is the sow. Okay. okay. So Amelia visited Hoke in prison. She vocally blamed herself for putting him behind bars. And then she asked for Johan's permission to take her own life should he be sent to the gallows. Oh, my God. I'm, Do you think he hypnotized her into saying that? I don't know. I mean, I I, I still think she's a shady lady. And, um, you know, so first of all, make your own decision. If, if Just move on. I'm done. The appeal made its way to the Supreme Court. And on December 15th, it was soundly denied. Johan Hoek's execution was scheduled for February 23rd, 1906. As a prison guard lit his cigar for him, Hoke said, quote, I may die to satisfy the state's attorney, but the people of Illinois do not pay for murder. They pay money for justice. At 10 a.m., when Hoke was brought to the gallows, guards, inmates, even the reverend were openly weeping. A throng of onlookers crammed the streets, the largest gathering for a hanging in nearly 20 years. Slowly, the guards marched Hoke to the gallows. The crowd was roaring. Just then, Frank D. Comerford ran up screaming, I've got to stay! Send Whitman here! Whitman was the jailer. After looking at his documents, the guards were ordered to bring Johann Hoke back to his cell. He smiled and said, Well, boys, what's for dinner? Okay, I am... I do not believe I, I have some very strong pains about capital punishment, but at this point I'm ready to kick the, 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 the stool out from underneath him. I'm done. I am like, what an asshole. I Hoke, mean, of course, you know, all of the oh, total asshole. And, you know, murdering and stuff, but then yeah. Hoke asked for a sirloin and German style potatoes. Comerford and his cronies were given until 2 PM to get their appeal in order. They scrambled to the courthouse but were denied by the judge and actually reprimanded for not following protocols. They tried going above that judge's head, but they couldn't find his boss in time. Hoke was dubbed the hardest man to hang in the history of Cook County Jail. He was dropped from the gallow at 1.33 p.m. His final words, quote, O Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. I must die an innocent man. Goodbye. In the end, Johann Hoke was only convicted for one murder. Although investigators were eventually able to confirm he killed at least eight women, Inspector Shippey and many others believe the number of women killed by Hoke to be as high as 30 and that he married and swindled more than 50 women. To the very moment of his death, People thought Johann Hoke was a gentleman, possibly even innocent. Hoke believed he was a polite killer. That really stuck with me when I was researching this. Hang on. What? A polite killer? Yes. He believed he was a polite killer because he used poison. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I try not to use this word, but he's a fucking murderer at this point. Like, really? Yeah. I'm a polite killer? Yeah. Sorry for the yeah. F word. No, no, I feel you. So that... When he said that, it really stuck with me. He's like, oh, you know, I'm not cutting heads off. I just poison people. So I wanted to find out from an expert what dying at the poisonous hands of the polite murderer Johann Hoke might have felt like. I was able to consult with Dr. Voke Oko. He's an interventional gastroenterologist, uh, fancy words for a really badass stomach doctor. So Dr. Voke Oko said... It's like a wide-awake seizure. It's really scary. Because the effects are more prominent in the spinal cord, the poison leads to rhythmic seizure-like convulsions of the peripheral nervous system, which controls the musculoskeletal and motor systems. 
But the victim is wide awake and locked in while the body painfully contracts so intensely that muscles actually start to tear and break down, a condition called rhabdomyolysis. The victim is forced into this uncontrollable sprint to death despite having all faculties and pain receptors functioning. The body literally becomes acidotic. Eventually, the diaphragm can't overcome the impulse to contract, and without relaxation, the chest cannot expand. So death comes from an asphyxiation as if in the grip of a giant boa constrictor with your chest in a vice, and you're awake until you pass out and die from lack of oxygen. That's what happened to the women he poisoned. And let me tell you, it's not fucking polite. Super polite. That's, that's... Finally. Horrifying. I'll leave you with this. In the days prior to his death, the Chicago Sun newspaper printed the rules Hoke claimed to live by. The set of ideals that won him so many hearts. Six ways to win a woman told by Bluebeard Hoke. Nine out of every ten women can be won by, fla- by flattery. Never let a woman know her own shortcomings. Always appear to a woman to be the anxious woman. Women like to be told pleasant things about themselves. When you make love, be ardent and earnest. And last, the average man can fool the average woman if he will only let her have her own way at the start. Is that advice to all the Tinder dudes out there? Oh, okay. Is is that going to win you, Don Palumbo? Going to get hypnotized by Johan Hoke? You can sure try. It's not going to work, but this this is horrifying. Like it's crazy, and and his he inspired other killers similar to him. He's just the most prolific in the first one. There's there's so much there's so much underneath this that like. There is like there was like a secret group of bigamists who had meetings and and like planned and coordinated the best efforts to lie, steal and cheat and kill from these women. Well, and it just it pisses me off because, you know, we are what 120 years away from the majority of this, right? And and he was just a dude who took advantage of people and Does then it, murdered them. I mean, women took advantage of women. Yeah. Well, the zither and the the hypnosis. The zither gets me. I don't know why, but it just, it makes me giggle. I can't, I, he will forever be known as Rumpelstiltskin to me. Very fair. Sources for this episode. The primary source, the book, Heartland Serial Killers by Richard Lindbergh. That's the Heartland Serial Killers by Richard Lindbergh. This was also supplemented by Murderpedia.org, specifically the story of Chicago's Bluebeard, the serial murders of Johann Otto Hoke. Also, claver.gprep.org. That's everything. A big thank you again to our live audience for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. Huge thanks to Atypical for having us. And of course, a shout out again to the DVCC of Minot for sponsoring this episode. You can find their website, courageforchange.org. Feel free to make a donation and, and help a, a woman or a man facing a domestic crisis, somebody in need. That's courageforchange.org. And of course, this episode is also brought to you in part by Manscaped. You can save 20% off and get free worldwide shipping with the code MidwestMurder. Just highly recommend those underwear, man. They're so, like, you get snug in there, really. Anybody who likes good snug undies, manscape. There's always a line. There's got to be one more. Okay. We thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.